jasoncharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. Arts and culture. You are listening to Lost Angeles with Laura Craven on jasoncharles.net. This is Laura Craven with Lost Angeles on the jasoncharles.net podcast network. Today, my very special guest is Sean Levy, and we're going to talk about his book, The Castle on Sunset, about the Chateau Marmont. He has written many books about the the entertainment industry, uh, including biographies of Robert De Niro and Paul Newman and Rat Pack Confidential. The Castle on Sunset is Sean Levy's definitive biography of the building that is perched at the eastern end of Sunset Boulevard. Over the decades, it's been host to many actors, actresses, writers, directors, and the Illuminati from across the world's cultures. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sean. Thank you. I want to start off by talking about how this was really the the dream of Fred Horowitz, who was familiar with the Chateau d'Ambois in France, and he wanted to recreate a really special space like that in Hollywood, which was really in its infancy. Los Angeles was a growing metropolitan center, but it it was still kind of like the Wild West out there. Did he realize his dream of building a chateau in the the face of the one that he had seen in France and really wanted to recreate? Yeah, the, the building he, he was inspired by in the Loire Valley was... Um a medieval castle with an L shape and a central turret. And his brother-in-law, Arnold Weitzman, was an architect. And he commissioned Arnold, based on photographs, to replicate the exterior. And they used a lot of the materials to replicate, you know, a slate roof and a kind of sandy gray exterior, the, the shape, the turrets, the Gothic archways. So in, in superficial ways, the Chateau Marmont resembles a, a French medieval castle. Um, it's, it's not built to be fortified um, and it's filled with it's, it's terraced deliberately so that there would be multiple penthouse units. Uh, Horowitz built it as an apartment house. He was hoping to rent and sell units. Hmm. So maximizing the view, it was on a hillside just west of Laurel Canyon Drive, so that there was uh, sea to downtown views, mountain to mountain views. And he had his brother-in-law cantilever the upper floors so that there would be patios and terraces in as many units as possible. That's not a feature of, of a French castle. Right, <laughs> right. But a great use of space and yeah. the views, they must just be absolutely stunning. Um, and because his brother-in-law really wasn't a, um, a tall building architect, they did bring in William Douglas Lee, who he did have taller apartment building experience in Los Angeles. And so at that time, do you think that the actual uh, aesthetic shifted a little bit when he was brought on? You know, they, there, there were some strange stipulations in the remit that Horowitz gave the architects. He wanted double poured walls so that um, the concrete would be twice as thick as in a normal building to um, safeguard against earthquakes. He wanted each unit 
to have its individual layout, which is kind of impossible and it wasn't 100% achieved, but both of the two architects who worked on it, you know, sought to individualize each apartment unit. And, you know, there, there, were, there were odd little touches, you know, closets within closets or, you know, funky little alcoves off of main rooms just to, just to make things a little different in each unit. And I suppose that, that choice winds up defining the place because long-term or frequent visitors to, to the chateau had special affinity for certain rooms. Mm-hmm. It came down also to the, the furnishing. You, know, you, could, you could rent an apartment and bring in your own furniture or you could rent it as a furnished apartment. But they had so exceeded the budget in building the place that there was no money left to buy quality furnishings. So they had bric-a-brac and cheap, uh, you know, plywood furniture bought in bulk. Um, And (laughs) over the years, various owners were able to move in and, and sort of put better pieces in, but not matching 63 units exactly. Right. That's such an interesting part of it, that uniqueness, not only in layout, but how each interior was decorated, as it were. And after Horowitz, the the owner that came in, um, Albert Smith, it was he who, because of the depression, was able to go to these estate sales and and purchase just gorgeous pieces to come and and decorate the interiors, which um, is a very resourceful thing to do. So Horowitz only owned it for two years, if that's correct. And uh, he never actually saw any profit from this, this dream of having individual apartments being rented or sold. So when Albert Smith came in, buying it from him, was that when it became a hotel and it was his intention to just do short-term rentals? That's right. Horowitz, um, they, they, they opened the place in February of 29. It was a luxury building, but it was built uh, off of a dirt road. That is to say, Sunset Boulevard at that moment was not paved between Laurel Canyon and the Beverly Hills city line. Um, so that stretch of road, there were barely any commercial enterprises. There were you know, uh, avocado groves and onion fields. Uh, where there are now, you know, trillion dollar properties. Right. And, um, you know, it was, a, it, it was, even though Horowitz had this vision that, and it was correct that that edge of what is now West Hollywood would be more central to the Los, An- Los Angeles metropolitan area. At that moment, it was the outskirts and it was a tough sell. And then eight months later, the stock market crashed. So any hopes of turning a, a building, a luxury building into a profit maker were, were you know, severely dimmed. Uh, after about two years of giving it a go, he sold it to Albert Smith, who decided from the get-go that it was going to be a hotel for a number of reasons. One was he had started one of the first movie studios, Vitagraph. He had connections in the movie business, and he knew that with the advent of talking pictures, a lot of Eastern, East Coast and European actors, writers, and directors would be coming to Hollywood for extended stays, but wouldn't be interested in buying a place. So a residential hotel was perfect. 
Additionally, because these were built as apartments, everyone had a kitchenette. So it really was like a home of your own in, in West Hollywood. Secondly, the Olympics were in Los Angeles in 1932. So there would be an immediate demand for hotel space. And the, thirdly, that area by 1932 started to be more developed. When, when the Chateau was built in 1927, 28, 29, UCLA was not fully constructed. City Hall downtown was not fully constructed. The Roosevelt Hotel on Hollywood Boulevard was not fully constructed. So the area was still you know, in progress. By 1932, when Smith got it, it was much more established and was only going to be increasingly so. Mm-hmm. Wow, fascinating about it being a dirt road. I mean, I just can't even imagine that. And, and also the, the name of the building, Marmont, came from the street that is adjacent to Sunset Boulevard. And I was, I was surprised to read that that name was for an English actor who, right. yeah, it sounds like, and it's a little murky how the street was actually named for him, but it just works perfectly as a hotel name. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't even a street. It was a dirt road off a dirt road that curled up and then ended on another dirt road. I mean, it was mm-hmm. really just a, a, a kind of cattle path. Right. Um, and it was named for Percy Marmont, an English actor who appeared in a lot of silent movies. He was a star you know, at, at the time. Um, I don't know. You, you have these subdivisions get built where the streets are named for presidents or colleges or fruits and you know, so somebody who had to lay out this road for the city for some reason called it after Percy Marmont might have been their favorite actor. Right, right. Interesting. Well, totally, it works. And then, well, after Albert Smith purchased the property, then he also uh, purchased adjacent property and added the bungalows that are now out around the pool, although there was no pool at that time. And, um, you know, and that was kind of genius because it added to that kind of isolation, as it were, if you wanted that to just have a residence there, but still be part of a a hotel atmosphere and kind of in the middle of everything. So that was really um, a genius move on his part. And and it provided the building with with, um, land. You know, a hotel should at least have a place where you can walk around or sunbathe or something. Remember, this is not downtown. This is you know, in an area where most of the homes had pools, just across the road was the famed Garden of Allah Hotel, right. which was famous for a pool that was built in the shape of the Black Sea. And, you know, Chateau Marmont did not have a, a pool at the time, but giving it the outbuildings allowed guests to, you know, sit outside, you know, with their morning mm. coffee, which they would have had to provide, even though it was a hotel. There was a continental breakfast service, but there was no restaurant. There was no gift shop. There was no gym, no business center. (laughs) None of the stuff we associate with a luxury hotel. The main luxury it afforded was privacy. Right. There was no lobby. You didn't walk through a crowded space, you know, where someone who worked for the studio or the LA times might be, you, you parked your car in a garage, you went up in an elevator to your room. Mm -hmm. Um, And the private private space was the, the exclusive uh, perk of the thing. Right. Right. And I can see where that might not appeal to, to some people, but definitely the, um, the loyal people who stayed there year after year, or, you know, would return to it over the decades. I mean, that was something that they truly loved about it. So. 
yeah, if you were going to actually work, right. you know, um, Dominic Dunn, who in later decades uh, was a, a, a frequent long-term uh, guest of the Chateau as a hotel, always took rooms on the backside, the Montiel Road side of the hotel, because it was quieter. Where you know, so that meant he didn't have the great view, he didn't have the the terraced balcony overlooking Sunset Boulevard and the whole of of the Southland, but he could actually you know concentrate on his work and actually produce pages. Right, right. It sounds like over the years, I mean, just amazing pieces of work were brought to life there, whether, you know, screenplays, books, music. I mean, it seemed to be a real draw for the whole kind of Laurel Canyon music scene because of its proximity. And just reading in your book about some of the amazing songs that came to life there is it's fascinating. Later on during the, the uh, heyday of pop music and rock, if you were an East Coast or English act, this was the nearest thing to a New York hotel or, or a European pension that you could find in that area. There were other rock and roll hotels on the strip, the Sunset Marquee and the, the Hyatt House, aka the Riot House. Right. But they were they were a different kind of scene. Even though the Sunset Marquee was built inspired by the bungalows of Chateau Marmont, it had a bar, it had a restaurant, it had the common areas where you know musicians could meet their fans and you know parties could start and continue and what have you. Right. Um, Chateau Marmont was much more a place for hunkering down. Mm-hmm. And as it evolved, then Erwin Brettauer became the the owner. I think this was was it post World War II? No, it was it purchased? was it was um, during the war. He mm-hmm. bought it. And um, he is the owner that added the pool, which was also a great amenity to to bring in. But one, I really appreciated what you wrote about him because he was anti-fascist. He was fleeing Europe to be away from from all that was going on there. And he really brought that philosophy to the hotel. I, I can really appreciate that, you know, his tolerance for any type of lifestyle and any color, as it were, was very progressive at the time. And, um, you know, people who didn't share those ideas were kind of not welcome there. That's right. You know, Erwin Ir- Brettauer, if, if anyone deserves the label anti-fascist, he was a banker in Southern Germany from a family of bankers, even though he had a degree in chemistry and had done some work with Einstein. He was a a proper scientist. Um, Erwin Brettauer funded the guy who ran against Hitler in 1933. I'm sorry, your anti-fascist cred doesn't get deeper than that. You literally put your money where your mouth is in Germany in the 30s. And when he um, saw the rise, you know, he, he was Jewish. When he saw that the fascist regime was going to be what it was. He transferred all his money into Swiss banks. So he kept the family fortune and the family banking enterprise going. And then he came to the United States. He started investing in properties, hotels and apartment buildings in New York. And then he came to Southern California. He was something of a ladies man, you know, rich European ladies man coming to Hollywood to meet actresses. Very old story. Um, And he acquired the property and he was shocked to learn about some of the restrictions. Um, In the mid-1950s, up until rather the mid-1950s, 
black musicians, actors, black people with money of any sort who wanted to live or work or rent property in West Hollywood were unable to. They, there were covenants and restrictions in place. Hotels would not rent to black uh, clientele. And the, you know, the most famous black entertainers had to stay in South Central at the Dunbar Hotel, which was sort of the, the plaza of Black Hollywood, the Plaza Hotel or, or the Beverly Hills Hotel of Black Hollywood. When Erwin Brethauer found out about that, he said, that's, that's not uh, okay with me. I was going to say kosher. Um, and, <laughs> Works you know, too. Yeah. And, and he, um, he insisted that the hotel be integrated. Duke Ellington was the first person, for, uh, first uh, Black entertainer who stayed at the hotel. And it became, the, the Chateau became a destination for Black entertainers until the other places in, in and around the area, you know, became more tolerant. Uh, the first mention of Chateau Marmont in the New York Times, historically, was when Sidney Poitier was not able to stay anywhere else on the west side of L.A., while making movies. He was a New Yorker and he needed a long-term rental. He couldn't rent a house for his kids, uh, you know, to be with him, to go to school. So he rented a couple of adjacent uh, rooms, uh, suites at Chateau Marmont. And that's the first time the hotel was taken note of in the New York Times. So that late when Sidney Poitier is a star, it was still the case that most of, uh, the hotels and, and rental properties in that part of LA were, were segregated. Wow. Incredibly recent history. Yeah. One of the interesting things about Brett Tower also, he had his manager or, um, you know, the person who he had running the hotel was um, someone named Dr. Popper, which yeah. seems like a really interesting character. It's, he, is it true? He was a hunchback. It is true. I spoke to Brett Tower's daughters and they were terrified of this guy um, simply by, you know, on the basis of his appearance. He was this Peter Laurie-ish character, you know, a kind of um, dwarf hunchback um, with thick glasses and, uh, and spoke very little English and did so with a thick German accent and used to come to their house to go over the books with their father and they get into screaming matches in German. That said, according to people who worked at the hotel alongside Dr. Popper, he was kind of beloved of the staff and he was something of a ladies man. They would, you know, he would, he would be seen out to dinner with, you know, young women and um, women of means, women who, you know, probably didn't lack for opportunities to date. And he was, he was uh, a, a man on the town. So cheers to Dr. Popper. <laughs> Definitely. And it seems it just adds to that, the vision of this Gothic castle that you have yes. this guy walking around that is, you know, such a fixture. It seems like, um, yeah, managers in general were very, you know, long-term and beloved before Brett Tower. It was Anne Little, who was the general manager there under Smith and, yeah, it just seems like the cast of characters that would come in and be loyal just really always loved the the staff in that way. Yeah, it, you know, unlike modern hotels, it really was homey. Again, you, you your apartment, your unit was like an apartment. You have a to this day, you have a kitchen in in every room or a kitchenette, and 
there were only 43 units in the, in the main building when it was built. So it was tiny. It was family style. And you were more than the manager of the hotel. You were sort of the superintendent and concierge and, you know, sort of abbess in the case of, of Anne Little, who was there for decades. Mm -hmm. And whoever had that position um, really, you know, had in, in his or her hands the, the, the whims of movie stars. Yes. But also like these were long-term customers. Some, you know, one, one of the, the great stories in the book is um, the making of Rebel Without a Cause. Nicholas Ray, the, the director of Rebel Without a Cause, rented a bungalow at Chateau Marmont for eight years running, which tells us A, how accommodating the hotel was to long-term guests and B, how cheap it was. <laughs> because to stay there for eight nights today in a bungalow would cost you about $8,000. Right. So, you know, it, it was meant for long-term stays. And that meant, you know, you didn't have the same amenities. You didn't have the same upkeep. You didn't have the same air of exclusivity, but it was a home. Yeah. And I love that aspect of it being home. It was, you know, the amenities around it, like Schwab's drugstore and, you know, other restaurants and the Garden of Allah across the way. I mean, it, it must've felt like, you know, their neighborhood for the long-term guests that, that lived there. They just had everything so close. I love the stories of people like Greta Garbo and Miles Davis just wandering into the hills. Miles used to go jackrabbit hunting with Rip <laughs> Torn and they would walk. This is the 1950s and they would walk into the hills and you could, you could hunt game. And Greta Garbo used to walk up into the hills and pick wildflowers for her her centerpieces, you know, it was, it was still the edge of the, the metropolitan. It was part of the city, but it was other than. Right. Incredible. Because now it, every square inch of that yeah. area is built. It's just there, you know, there's a bit of nature existing still in Laurel Canyon, but you know, everything's behind gates now. And so God, yeah. it's, it has seen a lot of changes. And when Horowitz built it, it was like a castle, like, you know, the Rock of Gibraltar. It stood at the edge of something and it was the tallest building and it was on a hill and it was very unique. And now it's kind of surrounded. So it almost sneaks up on you. Like it you does. Almost, yeah. You can't pick it out the way in, in the twenties through the sixties, even it was like the most prominent building. Right. Now, right. if you're coming from the West, you make a curve in the road and there's this, this building. And if you're coming from the East and you're not looking, so if, if you're looking at the top of the hill, you don't see it. Right. Absolutely. You can miss it because yeah. it's the trees or the landscaping around. It's very not imposing at and all. A tiny sign that's right. not even next to the building. It's down on sunset Boulevard and a little neon sign smaller than most of the billboards promoting TV shows. Yeah. And you know, you could easily drive past it, even if you were looking for it. Right, right, for sure. I wanted to get into the, you know, obviously after Brett Tower, it changed hands several times until, you know, it went through its period of in the 60s when there was political unrest going on in Los Angeles and the whole Sunset Strip was, was changing. It was kind of transitioning from more of a traditional supper club type atmosphere into 
the rock and roll kingdom that it became. And um, through it all though, the Chateau, it still remained this haven for, for its loyalists, even though the situation on the strip was, was changing so dramatically. And at that time, that's when the Garden of Allah was sold, torn down, I believe. Right. And so through the 60s and 70s, that part of the book, you have kind of tumult and decay is the name of, of that portion. And, you know, in your opinion, was the Chateau kind of let go at that time a bit? And, it, you know, it kind of went into a decaying moment that it had to be kind of resurrected from at that time. You could talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, Erwin Brettauer's wife, who was younger than him, died in the early 1960s. She had she had two bouts of cancer, and um, the second one was fatal. And he was left with these sort of adolescent daughters, and he had all the money he was going to need for the rest of his life, and he just lost interest in running the property. And he sold it. It was owned by a series of investment entities that took on names like Chateau Marmont Enterprises. And you, you, know, you go look back at, at who was in it, and it's very hard to trace these things 50 years on. Um, but the, the, yeah, they, these were people who not, were neither in showbiz nor, nor the hospitality business. For them, it was a property. And at the time, in the late 50s and, and mid-60s, there was a chance that there was going to be a freeway running from the San Fernando Valley through West Hollywood to LAX approximately. And in fact, that stretch of La Cienega that feels like a highway south of, of Olympic is a stretch of that intended freeway. Um, and the properties around the intersection of Laurel Canyon and Sunset were increasingly left to go to seed in the hopes that this freeway project was going to come through, there was going to be an interchange there, and they could tear these things down, sell them, and make a fortune. But the rock and roll crowd came in and revitalized the Sunset Strip, and suddenly the property owners were like, hey, you know, Cary Grant's not coming out to dinner here anymore at, at Ciro's or, or, you know, Hamburger Hamlet, wherever they might have gone. But these kids are packing the street every night. And there was a new life, you know, the clubs changed hands and they went from tired old clubs where some, someone like Paul Anka might perform to a place where the birds were the house band or the doors were the house band. And there was a new vitality. Someone invented the, the, the uh, go-go club. And you <laughs> this know, is where women were in cages and yeah, dancing, yeah. <laughs> dancing above the crowd. Right. Um, and, you know, there, there was all this activity. And the property became valuable again. And that was the seed of the Sunset Strip riots, which were not political protests. They were protests against curfew. <laughs> right. um, my favorite sign that the kids had protesting was, leave us alone. Right. <laughs> Every That's something teenager, to fight for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Every teenager could relate to that. But it was, it was a moment of, of, of social upheaval, and Chateau Marmont was in the middle of it. And these various owners let it go to seed and hoping for a teardown. In the mid-70s, it fell to a fellow named Raymond Sarlot, who was experienced in building sort of tract homes in the valley and, and you know, parts of uh, um, the inland valleys. 
and you know he was not he was not hoping to have a luxury property on his hands i think he was looking for a teardown and developing something new on the spot but he was in the middle of a divorce and like so many men during their divorce he moved long term into chateau marmont and he fell in love with the place and he 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 was he was a contractor before he was a developer and builder of that sort and he could see like oh we just need to you know replace this floorboard here and you know these sconces and you know we could fix this up and and he got into the spirit of like let's not let this thing fall apart let's shore it up and he owned it for about 15 years and he never turned it into a, a luxury property but he kept it alive and he 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 improved it you know he 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 definitely in the late 60s early 70s it was a dive. Um, there's a story in my book of David Mamet being there in the 80s, in the Sarlat era even, coming to the front desk in a bathrobe with the shower knob in his hand saying, I can't, I can't turn the thing off. Can someone please help me? Um, oh. You know, and, 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 you know, Myrna Loy falling through a chair in her suite and, you know, th things like that were, were commonplace. And it was part of the charm of it, but it was also... You know, you didn't want to stay there if, if you were at all looking to be comfortable. Um, and Sarlat was the guy who, like, kept it from falling completely through the ice. He he shorted up the physical, you know, but but he was a terrible hotelier in terms of um, actually making money running a hostelry. And mm -hmm. he, he, he wound up needing to sell it simply because he was putting so much money into it but everyone was in there on a deal. Everyone's brother knew somebody and he wasn't really, you know, getting value for, for the, the property. And around him, there were other hotels that were charging much more for similar accommodation. Yeah. So, and that was in 1990, he sold right. it then. And um, so that's when it was, it was sold to Andre Balage. And he had, did he have like a consortium of investors that he came in with, or was it really him on his own. Balaj was, was part of a group, but he was the front man and, and probably the principal investor. It's, it's there. They still own the hotel. It's very hard to get the, the actual breakdown of the financials unless, unless you were offered a part of it. Um, Balaj is uh, independently wealthy. His father was a bio uh, engineer who had two um, tremendous businesses that he sold off to um international pharmaceutical companies, um, seven, uh, how many is billion? Billion is 10 figures, <laughs> 10, 10 figure deals. And Balaj is, is one of his two heirs. And um, he, he was getting into the restaurant and hotel business. Um, but Chateau Marmont was his first property. And the way people think of Chateau Marmont today, the way it is people's destination or bucket list hotel, the way it's considered a scandalous place and a place where you go to see the stars, that is the creation of Balaj. And it's a work of genius. I have many things less than flattering to say about his management of the hotel, but he turned it from a kind of floppy, divey, grungy, the, the, the Chelsea Hotel of Hollywood into a proper luxury hotel. He had a design team come in who had backgrounds in, in stage and film design. And they had this idea 
to make it look like a luxury hotel of the 40s and 50s, which in the 40s and 50s, it never was. So when you go in there today, you feel like, wow, this is luxurious. This is what it must have looked like when Gene Harlow was here. No, when Gene Harlow was there, none of the furniture matched and, you know, the sconces were falling off the hallway walls. Now you go in and every detail, the doorknobs, the, if you go into a suite today, the toasters are these kind of, they're modern toasters, but they're retro looking. They look like toasters from the thirties or forties. Great detail. Everything yeah. about it, you know, all the tile mm-hmm. was upgraded, but looks like the old tile. And in, in talking about the renovation, Balaj said, you know, the greatest compliment he would be paid was when regulars from the past would, you know, they, the people who were very leery of him updating the hotel said, you know, I stayed in one of the new rooms on this trip and I didn't know until halfway through my stay that it was one of the new rooms. I thought I was in one of the old rooms and you had just fixed it, you know, wow. cleaned it up well. Quite you a know. compliment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Balaj put in the restaurant, the bar, the gym, the business center, all the amenities of a modern hotel. They reconfigured the hotel so that the entrance, which used to be facing Sunset Boulevard, is now on the uh, Marmont Road side, Marmont Lane side. And, um, you know, ev- everything about the hotel was tweaked and significantly upgraded at the same time. It looks like a tweak, but when you look under the hood, it's actually a, a vast improvement. Wow. Yes. And so he's been fabulously successful with that. I mean, it's at this point, even with, um, you know, all his personal like trials and tribulations that he's been accused of sexual harassment. And I think the staff attempted to unionize during during COVID. But he's still, you know, it's at the forefront of this greatly successful hotel. And um, it's either cost prohibitive right now, or it's it's a members only hotel. I was yeah. trying to get the, the take on that. And it was, it was hard to determine if you have to actually buy in with a membership or if you just have, you know, an extra couple thousand laying around for a night's rent, <laughs> then, then you can stay there. You know um, right now, the cheapest room at Chateau Marmont is probably about six or $800 a night. And that room is like tiny. It has a kitchenette counter, but it's one of these rooms where like you open it, there's a bed, there's a closet, there's a counter, and that's it. And, you know, the people staying upstairs or even to the side of you are in proper suites with living rooms and, and have dining tables. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's, um, they, they've maximized the, the, the room space probably two or three owners ago. But the most expensive rooms are, are close to 5000 a night. Uh-huh. So wow. it's long past the point where it's a bohemian hotel. Yes. It's bohemian yeah. in the sense of like people go there to party. It's like, you know, Caesar's Palace or, or someplace in Dubai, you know, which can be bohemian, but also, you know, extremely exclusive. Um, so it's not that. And yeah. during COVID, the, the couple of things that happened there were, were pretty shocking. Um, as soon as the hotel had to shut down because of lockdown and lack of lack of hotel business, the entire staff was let go. They were fired. Some of those people had been there since the 60s. Some of them had been working there since they were teenagers. And, you know, they were now like, had, they had, you know, children in college. Um, 
and they tried to unionize because you know there there was some talk at the time of oh he did them a favor by firing them because he had fur- if he had furloughed them they wouldn't be eligible for unemployment or you know the the covid aid that was you know being offered to people in the hospitality and restaurant business but that turned out not not to be any use to them and in fact they lost their jobs so they're still in the process of of unionizing and and coming to terms there has been some agreement in recent weeks between the hotel and the and the union. But during that time also, they were sued for racial and sexual discrimination in hiring and in fact in just sort of turning the turning away when when staff reported sexual um, abuse. And Balaj announced this scheme to turn it from a hotel to a members only place. So you would pay a fee to be a member annually or one, you know, perhaps there was a one time buy in of some exorbitant sum and you would always be able to rent a room provided there was a room available. Because, again, even with the outbuildings and the bungalows, there are only 63 keys in the entire joint. There's more more rooms than that on one floor of the Roosevelt Hotel. You know, um, so, you know, that that scheme, which struck me as really audacious because it came out at a time when no one could travel. Right. (laughs) It's like, I'm going to sell you membership in a place you can't visit. Um, And I don't know. I haven't I I, you know, the book came out in 2019. So so I haven't researched this as the, 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 the more recent news as thoroughly as I did the history. Um, but I haven't seen that confirmed that that is 100% locked into place, that deal. Um, but in effect, it is a private hotel. You know, yeah, you and I could call up and get a room, you know, three months from now, you know, for $800 a night and barely have enough space in it to open our luggage. But, you know, it's, it's booked a year or three in advance for things like Oscar week, Grammy week, fashion week you know, uh, dur- during the run-up to awards season, various uh, uh, clothing lines and makeup and, and hair stylists rent out multiple suites. You know, stars are very comfortable coming to Chateau Marmont. They've been doing it their whole careers. And they, they, they can, you know, just say, show up at one, at, you know, in room so-and-so, and they turn the place into, you know, I've seen, I've seen rooms at Chateau being used during award season as tattoo parlors. So, you know, it, it beca- it's so clubby already that making it mm. formally a members-only situation seems like, you know, piling on. Right, right. And just, and it would be nice for someone with, you know, if you do have the means to just be able to experience that. It's certainly on, on a list of, of places I'd like to stay. And I, I just love the whole history. I mean, obviously, you know, everyone knows about the the turmoil and the drama and the deaths that have happened there and the scandals. And, you know, so I won't like go into, to all that, but I, I recommend your book to so many people because it's just, it has so much amazingly researched history, Sean, and, you know, just incredible anecdotes and stories and, you know, and as someone interested in architecture, I just can really appreciate all the information that, that you have about the genesis of the building, how it evolved through the years, where it is now. I I do really appreciate this. And I'm excited to read some of your other works too. I understand that you have a book coming out this spring that is about female comedians. 
Right. It's called In on the Joke, the original queens of stand-up comedy. And it's a group biography of people like Phyllis Diller, Joan Rivers, Moms Mabley, Minnie Pearl, Elaine May, a bunch of women who are not as well remembered as that, that group, um, who were performing comedy, stand-up comedy at a time when, you know, if a woman took the stage alone in front of a mic, she was expected to sing, maybe take her clothes off and sing, but sing. And women in comedy took the role at that time of Lucille Ball or Carol Burnett. They were clowns or they were working in a pair against a man. They were the comic and the man was the straight man. Uh, Gracie Allen and George Burns being the, the great exemplar of that in vaudeville and early television. But these women, independently of themselves, really in, in ignorance of one another, because Moms Mabley and Minnie Pearl and um, a woman named Jean Carroll, who was working in the Borscht Belt, they were working in niches of show business. And they wouldn't know of one another. They weren't on TV. They, they didn't, yeah. if they toured, they, they toured in front of their own audiences. And then finally in the 60s, you get Phyllis Diller and Joan Rivers. And suddenly the idea of a woman standing in front of the mic telling jokes didn't seem so crazy. So right. it's, that's the history. And wow, it's told, you know, it's about a dozen women, every single one of them a hero. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Were you influenced at all to write it because of the Mrs. Maisel show? I, um, I, it, it certainly made it possible for the publisher to see that mm-hmm. it was a, a, a viable project. Um, you know, uh, Mrs. Maisel is fascinating to me because as a friend of mine put it, it's like a, uh, it's like a magical realist version of the life of Joan Rivers. It's, <laughs> There's things going on in there that did not happen. Far from it, but the the vibe is right. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the 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 spirit of the thing is right. Um, also influential, even though it came out after I was just about finished writing, was Hacks on oh, HBO. Yes, with Gene Smart. And yeah. Gene Smart is the Joan Riversy type of comedian. Right. Um, you know, in in contemporary Las Vegas and dealing with the young young woman whose career is made possible by the women in my book, Kicking exactly. Open the Doors. Wow, um, well, how timely. Yeah, and I will that be is. at Book Soup on May 25th, presenting in on the joke. So um, for, your, for your listeners in Southern California, yeah, Book great. Soup has been so good to uh, Castle on Sunset. Oh, yes, um, and they're perfectly situated on yeah. Sunset too. Yes, I love uh, that store. It's 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 a great store. It's it's uh, very dear to me. I worked on Sunset Boulevard throughout the uh, uh, late '80s and early '90s, and spent a lot of lunch times and paychecks mm-hmm. at Book Soup. So <laughs> nice. I'm, I'm always happy to visit it, and, and particularly pleased to bring the uh, the uh, Castle on Sunset and in on the joke to it. Right. Well, perhaps I will see you there in May. Oh, that would be great. great. Well, I just appreciate your time so much today, Sean. Thank you for all the wonderful stories and the history about the Chateau Marmont. I would encourage anyone interested in Los Angeles history to pick this up because the book, it tells the entire story. It's not just about, you know, what was going on inside the hotel, but you really flesh it out with the history of Los Angeles and how it grew up around it basically. Yeah, cheers. I, I always wanted to write a book about the Sunset Strip. I've written books about Las Vegas, Swinging London, and Rome in the 50s. And the Sunset Strip in the 60s belongs in that company. And I couldn't get people interested in the Sunset Strip book, but my editor at Doubleday said, what about Chateau Marmont just by itself? 
And I told my partner, oh, now, now I can write all about the Sunset Strip. And she said, no, you're supposed to write about the hotel. <laughs> and I said, well, can I write about things I could see from the hotel? And she said, yes, but not from the top floor. <laughs> well, I'm thankful to that editor for sure. But um, so, Sean, let me know how can the listeners find out more about you and your work? Do you have a website? I do. It's seanlevy.com, S-H-A-W-N-L-E-V-Y. I am not the Sean Levy who produces indirect Stranger Things. I can't audition you. Don't send me your script (laughs) ideas. Don't send your children after me. I hear from kids every day of my life, and I'm not that guy. (laughs) Interesting. Well, thank you for making that uh, clarification. That's got to be a little wild. (laughs) Someday I'm going to collect these emails in a book called, Sorry, I Am Not the Sean Levy Who Makes Movies. That sounds inspired. I'm going to look for that. Well, thank you so much again for your time today. And I would, again, I'm encouraging everyone to check out your work and especially this book, Castle on Sunset. I just found it an incredible read. So thank you for all you do. Well, I I really appreciate it. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. And for the jasoncharles.net podcast network, this is Laura Craven with Los Angeles. You've been listening to Lost Angeles with Laura Craven on jasoncharles.net. JasonCharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.